Welcome back to Lethal. Let's talk about death row inmates. This week, I'll be covering a Texas death row inmate. This week, I'll be covering inmate number 999537, Melissa Elizabeth Lucio. She was convicted for killing her two-year-old daughter. This week, I'll be starting off the episode a little different. I usually start by talking about death row facts, but instead, I'll be sharing a letter I received from Mel Lucio. She is a Texas death row inmate currently serving in Gatesville, Texas. When I started the podcast, I wanted to talk about death row inmates each week, but I also wanted to get their perspective. So, I have written Texas, California, and Florida death row inmates, and this is my first letter that I've received back. All the information we receive is from the media and the court files, so getting their perspective is something I wanted to hear. Some death row inmates come from harsh backgrounds, and by no means am I saying it's justifiable for them to commit horrendous crimes, but I want to know what made them snap. You know, what made them commit these crimes? Did they grow up in an abusive home? Did they have an abusive spouse? Or did something just cause them to snap? I wrote to Melissa Lucio about a month ago, and I didn't hear back, so I decided to write to her again, and she responded. When I received her letter, I also received rules from the TDCJ prison, which was pretty helpful because I didn't know a lot of them. Inmates are not allowed to receive mail that is on colored paper, which would have been great to know because I did write to inmates on colored paper, so I don't know if most of them even got my letter, so I actually resent the letters just on white paper this time. Also, I don't get why they can't receive letters on colored paper. That doesn't really make sense to me, but I'm sure there's a reason. I don't know. Letters cannot contain perfume, stickers, lipstick, bodily fluid, I mean, duh, powdery substances, or artwork that uses paint, glitter, glue, or tape. The second round of letters I sent to the inmates, I made sure to include a return envelope with a stamp and my returning address, but inmates are not allowed to receive these items either. They're only allowed to receive stamps from Bible study classes, which was very interesting. I didn't know that. All right, calm down. I'm getting to the letter. So I sent her a letter and I let her know I started a true crime podcast and I wanted to get her perspective on her case. I also let her know that I'm open ears and she's free to share whatever she'd like and I won't judge. So she started off by telling me about herself. Her name is Melissa, but she prefers to go by Mel. She's a 51-year-old woman and her birthday is actually on June 18th, so TDCJ website has it wrong. I think they have it down as July. She was born in Lubbock, Texas and was raised in the Rio Grande Valley. She's the oldest of five siblings, so she pretty much raised them. She has 14 children, seven girls and seven boys. Mel loves to draw, read, write, solve Sudoku puzzles, and listen to 80s music. She misses cooking her Mexican dishes, especially cooking flour tortillas. For fun, she helps garden in the recreational yard. They have cucumbers, tomatoes, bell peppers, jalapenos, watermelon, Swiss chard, lettuce, and herbs. Mel also wanted to let me know she's loving, caring, and a giving woman. She enjoys meeting people and making friends. 
I will be responding to her letter today. I've just been contemplating how I'm going to go about this because she sounds like a great woman. I mean, I love 80s music and I love eating tortillas too, but then I have to remember I can't put on my blinders. She's a human being, so I'm going to treat her with kindness and respect, but I also have to remember that she's on death row for a reason, so I will be going over her case. My mom questioned me when I started the podcast and wanted to know why I would write to death row inmates. Why would I give them my time of day? And receiving my first letter verifies why I wanted to write to them. We only hear one story. We only hear about this monster through the media. But who was this person before the act was committed? I want to know if the inmate has maybe grown as a person from this experience. Are they sorry? Would they take back this crime if they could? Or are they stone cold and not remorseful? By no means am I taking up for the death row inmate, but I want to be an outlet so we can hear what's going on from the other side. And I really just want to know why. Why did they do it? This week, I'll be covering Melissa Lucio, inmate number 999-537. I'll give y'all a warning. This case is very graphic, and I debated against going over the case because it involves a two-year-old child. But I thought since I'm writing to the inmate, I'm sure y'all want to hear her story. So here it is. Mel was convicted in Cameron County. This is located in South Texas by Brownsville, so this is considered a border town. She was actually the first Latina to be sentenced to death in Texas. So let's go ahead and jump into the case. On Saturday, February 17, 2007, the paramedics were dispatched at 7 o'clock at night to her apartment. Mel lived there with nine of her children and her husband, Robert Alvarez. When the paramedics arrived on scene, he noted that the two-year-old was by herself lying on her back on the floor, not breathing. Unfortunately, no pulse was found at the time. Their paramedic also noted that Mel was calm and her reaction to what happened to her daughter was not appropriate. She wasn't sit- She wasn't sitting with her daughter when they arrived. She wasn't trying to give aid to her. The little girl was by herself. Mel told police her two-year-old daughter, Mariah, had fallen down the stairs. These stairs were on the side of their apartment, outside. Paramedics loaded Mariah in the ambulance, and when they arrived to the hospital, she was pronounced dead. When Mariah was at the hospital, her body was examined, and they noticed marks were up and down her body. It was clear she was abused. Her injuries were not consistent with her falling down the stairs. For example, Mariah had bruises covering her back, and they were at different stages of healing. She had bite marks on her back, and one of her arms was previously broken before the fall. It was estimated the break occurred at least seven weeks before the fall had occurred. Mariah was also missing chunks of her hair that had clearly been pulled out by the roots. A forensic pathologist then examined Mariah two days later on February 19th. The pathologist declared her death as blunt force head trauma. At the trial, the pathologist stated, and I quote, it would have occurred within 24 hours prior to her death and it would have been immediately apparent that Mariah was in distress and in need of medical attention, end quote. He stated that the injuries were not consistent with falling down the stairs and it was more consistent with being hit in the head with an object, with a fist, or slamming her against something hard. The investigators interviewed Mel on February 17th, the night of the incident, and the questioning began at 10 o'clock at night and lasted until 3 o'clock in the morning. Investigators said that she was not making eye contact and she was only looking down, and with their experience, this is a common body language clue that shows that she was guilty or she was hiding information from them.
Mel told police that she would spank Mariah when she was bad. She also stated that she would pinch Mariah's vagina and she would bite her on the back randomly. Mel said her daughter Mariah was sick the day she died. She would not eat, she was tired, and she was breathing heavily. But she was scared to take her daughter to the doctor because of the marks on her body. When Mel tried to feed her, she would clench down on her teeth and she would not open her mouth. The doctor verified that this is consistent with a head injury. Mariah clenching down on her teeth wasn't her acting up, but this was a symptom caused by a head injury. She could have been having a seizure without Mel even realizing it. Let me also state that the medical team, when Mariah arrived at the hospital, did not notice any head injuries. The head trauma was discovered by the pathologist during the autopsy. When Mel was in police custody, they transported her to a dental office to get her mold done for her teeth so they could compare the bite marks on Mariah's body. During this ride, Mel was given one phone call, so she called her sister. During this time, the police officer overheard the conversation and heard Mel tell her sister, I quote, Don't blame Robert. This was me. I did it. So don't blame Robert. End quote. This was used during the trial because this is pretty incriminating. This isn't a full confession, but it could be interpreted as one. During the trial, the defense argued that Mel could be charged with injury to a child because she caused injury before the death, but did not cause the fatal injuries that killed Mariah. The defense stated that she wasn't mother of the year, but she wouldn't kill her child. There was reasonable doubt that they argued. They argued that she did confess to abuse and neglect, but she never confessed to murder. The state argued that Mel caused fatal injuries that caused Mariah's death because on her autopsy, her kidneys, her spinal cord, and her lungs were bruised. Let's go back a little bit. Let's start in 2004. CPS came in and removed the children due to physical neglect and neglectful supervision of the children. But CPS also investigated allegations in 95, 96, 98, 2000, 01, 2002, 2003, and 2004. The children were eventually returned on November 21, 2006. During these allegations, there, were, there was never evidence of physical abuse towards her children. The state used this against her during her trial, but they also brought up more from her past, that she had a DWI conviction. Um, they also brought up some violations in the county jail, such as fighting with and having verbal disagreements with inmates, possession of contraband, unauthorized communication with other people, and being disrespectful to the guards. So what happened that caused Mel to abuse her child? She didn't just wake up one day saying, I think today's the day. Unfortunately, Mel was sexually abused as a child by one of her mother's boyfriends. She was molested for at least two years in her own house. At the age of 16, she was introduced to drugs and she started to use cocaine at a young age. And her first husband was abusive towards her mentally, physically, and verbally. She was exposed to abuse at a very young age. And I'm not saying this excuses her behavior because it doesn't. But it's also sad to have been exposed to this at such a young age. During her trial, she was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder from previous physical and sexual abuse. Mel was convicted with capital murder on February 17, 2007 for the death of her daughter, Mariah. She was sentenced for the death penalty on July 22, 2008. Mel's conviction could be overturned. 
A federal appeals court has overturned her conviction on July 29, 2019, but the state is appealing the reversal, and the hearing has been delayed due to the coronavirus. She could be granted a new trial due to an accidental death and an unfair trial. Also, this would be her last appeal she'll be able to make. So, there is a documentary coming out this year. It's called The State of Texas versus Melissa, and it looks really good. There was no specific date on when it was going to be released. It just said fall 2020, so I will keep you all updated. Um, it looked like it had a lot of details. They interviewed the family, and they interview her at the prison. So, I'll keep you all updated on the Instagram for whenever it comes out. So, what do you all think? Is Mel guilty, or is she innocent and sitting on death row? I'll let you make the call. I also wanted to let y'all know I'm not going to be covering a lot of cases that involve death of a child. I think it's very difficult to listen to children cases and it's very difficult to research cases that involve death of a child. Um, when I was in grad school, I worked at a children's hospital for three weeks, three long weeks after I quit. Um, dealing with sexual and physical abuse cases for children was very difficult for me. Um, so just researching them is really hard and I know listening to them must be even harder. So I will not cover a lot of those cases. And also make sure if you have kids or nieces, nephews, whatever, you know, always talk to them. Make sure they're okay, they're doing good, they're not being bullied or abused. It's very important to have communication with them. You know, we're supposed to be their advocates and be their voices because they're little and they're growing up and sometimes they don't have a voice. So I just wanted to throw that out there for y'all. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review on Apple Podcast. Go follow my Insta, lethal underscore podcast, and feel free to shoot me an email at lethal.tcpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to tune in next Wednesday for a new case and a new inmate. I'll be covering a new death row inmate. All the information used in my podcast came from the following. Murderpedia, law.justia.com, deathpenalty.org, offender.tdcj.texas.gov. Thanks for listening. Can't wait to see you next week.